who was St. Nicholas really? And what does he have to do with Christmas? Well, there's history, and then there is fable. The history, as best we can tell, is that Nicholas was born around the year 280 A.D. in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Nicholas eventually became the Bishop of Myra, and he was honored for enduring exquisite persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire during the crackdown, the widespread anti-Christian campaign of Emperors Diocletian and Maximian. He reportedly was tortured and released and returned home as a hero for enduring all of it. People flocked around him as he came home. Nicholas, confessor! St. Nicholas has come home! Now, a confessor is one who admits his faith even in the face of persecution. Nicholas was from a wealthy family, but he gave his vast fortune away helping poor children. And not only that, he also was a defender of the faith. He was present at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Council of Nicaea, that's where the Nicene Creed was forged. You know, the one that we just affirmed earlier in the meeting, confessing one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So Nicholas had a very high view of Christ, to say the least. St. Nicholas attended this council. It had been called by Constantine, the Council of Nicaea, in order to address a heresy that is a false teaching at the very core of the faith called Arianism. Arius was teaching that the Son was not eternal God because since he was a son, he must have had a beginning. And therefore, he was a created person made by God to go and fashion a universe. And here, here's where the history gets interesting. Because at Nicaea, St. Nick punched Arius in the face. Michael Reeves wrote, before the mushy tales of Santa's sleigh and his sack of presents got going, the stories told about St. Nick were rather different. The one Christian mothers loved to use to comfort their little ones was of the venerable bishop not shaking his belly like a bowl full of jelly, but rose-cheeked with anger, smiting the arch-heretic Arius at the Council of Nicaea. Now, no one condones violence in theological debate. Legend has it that the rest of the council was so shocked and dismayed that they were about to remove Nicholas from his post when a heavenly vision appeared to defend Nicholas. And so, the council allowed him to continue, and Arius was rejected along with his heresy. And meanwhile, the legends just continued to accumulate around Nicholas. Christians began to observe December 6 as Nicholas's feast day by giving presents. And Saint Nick would come at night wearing his red bishop's robe, filling boots with gifts for good children. Bad children got sent packing to the Black Forest. Well, eventually the Dutch name for Saint Nicholas got contracted down to Sinterklaas from which we get Santa Claus. So, why did jolly old Saint Nick 
resort to violence against the fourth century heretic Arius? Well, it's because of this. If Jesus is not the eternal Son, if Jesus is merely the first created being, then why would it matter? It would matter because if He's not fully God, then you and I are still in our sins. Because what He did was dependent upon who He was. It matters who Jesus is. And the Bible claims about Jesus, not that He was a wise and honest man, though He was. Not that He was a charismatic teacher, though He was certainly that too. But ultimately, that He is the divine deliverer of the whole world. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 to substantiate that. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, as we continue our Christmas time series through the early chapters of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1. Remember where we left off last week in the genealogy? We had seen Jesus' credentials, his pedigree, the long-awaited descendant of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed the uh, promised offspring of David, whose worldwide throne would last forever. In other words, this man was the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title for the anointed one, or the long-awaited deliverer. He had arrived on the scene, and the evidence that Matthew puts forward to establish that is the virgin birth. Unprecedented unparalleled Matthew 1 verse 18 now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may know that Jewish marriages in the first century were kind of a two-stage process. First, there was the betrothal or engagement, and then after about a year of that came the marriage itself. It says here that Mary was betrothed. That means pledged to be married. We would say engaged. And during the period of engagement, she would remain in her father's house. And the marriage was not consummated physically. That is, there was no sexual union until the engagement period was over. And then the husband took his new wife into his own home in a public joyous ceremony. Breaking off the engagement, 
actually required legal action. It required formal divorce. And that's exactly what we have here. Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. But why? Look at verse 18. Look at the end of verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph had taken Biology 101, and Joseph knew that virgins don't get pregnant. It wasn't just improbable. No, it was impossible then and now. And there was no other explanation than that she had been unfaithful to her betrothed, or so he assumed. But in fact, she had not been unfaithful. Verse 18 explains it. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know how Joseph found out. Maybe she was showing. Maybe she told Joseph. Maybe she recounted the phenomenal events told in Luke's Gospel. You know, the extraordinary happenings with her cousin Elizabeth, the angelic appearance and all. But no matter, Joseph wasn't convinced. A virgin birth simply wasn't credible to Joseph. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I think when we think of the ancient people written about in the Bible, we tend to think that these people were somehow gullible or at least more comfortable with supernatural explanations of happenings here. But not Joseph, interestingly. He didn't believe her until verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here, in verse 20, we have the staggering miracle of Christmas. The virgin conception of Jesus leading to what's called the virgin birth. Of course, you know that many people today, even people who call themselves Christians, even so-called professors and commentators on Christian causes, consider this to be sort of an embarrassment. Something to be avoided, maybe even a hindrance to evangelism, to put too much emphasis on the virgin birth. Like Episcopalian Bishop Shelby Spong, he called the virgin birth the entrance myth to go along with the resurrection, the exit myth. Spong and many people like him consider themselves too sophisticated to believe in a virgin birth. But the true church, the believing church, has always been clear on this issue. As you will have noticed, having just affirmed the Nicene Creed, which says he was incarnate. That means he took on human flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made a man. Is that improbable? Yes. Is it impossible? Absolutely. But as the angel told Mary in the Gospel of Luke, nothing is impossible with God. And so this was nothing short than a fresh creative act of God, the human nature of Jesus Christ. Now the other day I was enjoying lunch with Isam and Sandra, and we were admiring their little baby girl Hannah, 
incredibly cute. And we were wondering together, does she look more like Sandra or does she resemble more Isom? And honestly, I saw some of both. But you know, nobody ever said that of Jesus. Nobody ever walked by his manger and said, he looks so much like his father. Because Joseph wasn't his father. In fact, Jesus had no human father. This means the Holy Spirit, in a fresh act of creation, supplied all that was necessary to the humanity of the eternal Son of God. He was born of a woman. He was not born of a man. And so this Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it is here at this very point in verse 20 that Islam stumbles and Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians object. The Quran, for example, says in Surah Maryam, it befits not the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. But you know, Matthew isn't saying that God had physical relations with Mary. We aren't talking Greek mythology here. So be clear with your Muslim friends, educate them. I mean, evangelistic conversations with our Muslim friends don't have to be uh, cantankerous, controversial. We're simply educating people that we're not talking about Zeus morphing into a mighty eagle to have his own way with a fair maiden. No. The angel was describing a supernatural conception by the Spirit of God. Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Tell your Muslim friends, we don't believe in three gods. God is one, one being, one shared, united essence of divinity, and yet God is tri-personal. So there is both unity and diversity in God, three persons forever enjoying communion and fellowship together. Now, the heretic Arius, you know, the one Saint Nick slugged in the face, he was teaching that the Son was merely the first and greatest created being, that he was not himself God. But this is an important point for us to understand. Turn back to page five of your bulletin and recall the Nicene Creed. Everybody get that back open. Page five of your bulletin. Now, the Nicene Creed is a statement that was affirmed by the whole church in the year 381 A.D. This is a faithful statement of biblical teaching, and 17 centuries later, we're still affirming these facts. Look at the second paragraph there. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time. Now stop there. To beget someone is to become the father of someone. And this says he was begotten, notice, before all time. Of course, Jesus taught this very clearly in his prayer in John 17 when he prayed to the Father about the glory I had with you before the world began, John 17:5. Or at the end of John 17, he speaks of the love you shared with me before the foundation of the world. 
Now continue reading. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That is, they were always relating to one another in the relationship of father and son, of the same essence as the father through whom all things were made. So this says, no, the son was never created. He is fully, eternally God. He always was from eternity. Now C.S. Lewis explains it like this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. What God begets is God. And what this means is, that baby born at Bethlehem was deity. Low within the manger lies the one who built the starry skies. As to his divine nature, God the Son had always existed from eternity past. As Jesus said in John 8, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not of this world. And friends, no one in world history has ever seriously, credibly maintained this about himself. In this, Jesus was equating himself with God. The infinite had become an infant. God had become man. J.I. Packer wrote, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And this virgin conception wasn't random. It didn't just fall out of the sky because it had all been predicted hundreds of years before. In fact, all human history had been careening to this very point. Look at verse 22. All this took place, Matthew 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, this is the stunning truth of Christmas. God with us. That's not a prayer. That's not an aspirational statement. It's a fact. God had visited this world. He had come onto the scene personally. So from his seat of unimaginable power and authority in heaven, he humbled himself and actually came down and all for what? I mean, why was it necessary for God himself to enter into human experience in such a bizarre way? Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So his very name is rich with meaning. You see, Jesus is the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. That is, the covenant Lord of the universe saves, and that was Jesus' mission. He came to save his people from their sin. 
You see, Christianity is not good advice about morals. It's good news about God and what He has decisively accomplished. Entering this world, enduring poverty and scorn and suffering all for our sin. Of course, sin is not just making a mistake, is it? Sin is not just violating some external rules or failing to live up to your potential. No, sin is the one thing that all of us this morning have in common. I mean, just look at the congregation here this morning. All of the ethnic and racial and cultural diversity represented here. Despite the fact we come from far-flung places scattered all over the globe, all of us are sinners before the living God. Whether we're religious or irreligious, whether we're black or white, you know, it's worse than Omicron or Delta. We're afflicted with a universal moral disease. J.C. Ryle said, it is not the result of bad training in the early years. It is not picked up from bad companions and bad examples, no. It is a family disease which we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's a sin nature that does two things to us. First, it causes us to minimize God, to shrink Him down. You know, we must increase, so He must decrease. And so, we begin to think that His standards of holiness, well, they're really not that high after all. I mean, He doesn't really require complete and perfect righteousness. And so we hope that we can repay the debt ourselves through moral reform or making some religious contribution. And then there's a second thing that this corrupted nature does to us. It makes us minimize the penalty which we think is due because of our sin. I mean, since God is loving and merciful, we think, He will simply overlook our sin. We think God will forgive us. That's his job. But in fact, while God is compassionate, he is also holy and just. And he will not overlook our sin. To the contrary, he will judge our sin in one of two places. On the one hand, either it will be judged at a place of eternal conscious torment, which the Bible calls hell, or on the other hand, it was judged at the cross. Those are the two options, eternal hell and condemnation or the cross of Christ, which is why the focus of Matthew's gospel is actually not at the manger in Bethlehem. It's at the cross of Calvary. So fast forward to the end of Matthew, and where is Jesus? What is he doing to save us? He's hanging on a cross. He's suffering under God's curse. He's bearing in his body the full penalty for my sin and all of the sin of all of those who would turn and trust in Him. What did Jesus say at the Passover meal only days before? This is my body which is given for you. You see, Jesus wasn't content just to take our nature upon Himself. He took our sin upon Himself. John Stott said Jesus was not only made flesh in the womb of Mary, He was made sin at the cross of Calvary. Why did the eternal Son of God, through whom the universe was created, 
Why did he leave heaven and come down to earth and die the death of a common criminal? He did it all to save us. You see, since he was truly man, he could really represent us. He could stand in our place as a substitute. And since he was truly God, he could really deliver us. And not just hypothetically. Not just maybe if you quote the right formula or if you do the right religious things. Notice carefully verse 21 at the end of the verse. It says, He will save His people from their sin. Who are they? Well, Scripture teaches that Christ died specifically for His chosen people, the elect. So there is an undeserving subset of humanity for whom Christ died. Scripture teaches that when Christ came into the world, He was on a mission to win the salvation of a particular people who had been given to Him by the Father before the world was created. And His death was decisive. It was definite, triumphant on behalf of these specific people. It's not like Jesus, He might have died and maybe no, nobody would have believed. And heaven would not have been populated because it really depended on us. No, that's not the case. It's not like he died for nobody in particular. No, he died in the place of specific individuals. What does verse 21 say? His people. J.I. Packer said, Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem, and of Christ as a Savior who does less than save. And of God's love as a weak affection which cannot keep anyone from hell without help. And of faith as the human help which God needs for this purpose. But that's not the note that sounded in Scripture. No, in the New Testament, Jesus died specifically for his sheep, John chapter 10. He died specifically for his church, Ephesians 5. Jesus died for God's elect. Romans 8.33 Jesus died for many Matthew 20.28 and 26.28 or you have our verse today He died for His people so Jesus didn't die for everybody in the same way for example He didn't die for people who are in hell suffering now I mean, that would be double jeopardy, right? That would be unjust that such a price would be paid twice by Christ on Calvary and rebellious, unbelieving humans in hell forever. No, the death of Jesus did not merely make it possible that some people just might be saved. No, here is a Redeemer who really does redeem. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. What did the angel say? He will save his people from their sins. Now, let's think carefully for a moment. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love the whole world, because God does love the whole world. In many ways, Christ's death on a cross is a demonstration of God's amazing patience 
and kindness and love toward a world bent in rebellion against him. You know, we don't know who the elect are. Only God knows. And therefore, our job is to preach the gospel indiscriminately to everyone who will hear. But since Christ died for a particular people, we know some people will respond. Friends, this should give us enormous confidence in our evangelism here in Dubai. Right? If it were left up to us, if we're all, we're all about our creativity and innovativeness and flashiness, well, we would be without hope. But it's not all up to us at all. In Dubai, we regularly interact with people from the most resistant, most hardened people groups in the world, but our job is simply to sow the seed. Sow the seed and go home and pray and work hard building relationships with non-believers and declare the gospel to everyone who will hear. And God will call his people. As Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Or John 10, 27, my sheep will listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Friends, the bottom line is this. As B.B. Warfield asked, is it God the Lord that saves us or is it we ourselves? And does God the Lord save us or does he merely open the way to salvation and leave it according to our choice to walk in it or not? Well, the answer from Scripture is obvious. God saves from beginning to end or else None of us has any hope. Friends, that's why Matthew begins his gospel on as important a note as he ends his gospel. It begins with Jesus as the infinite personal Son of God, and it ends with Jesus as the crucified, risen Lord of the universe. Only in that way could we be saved. So, the virgin birth is God's almighty no to all manner of self-salvation, all the ways we try to clean our, ourselves up before a holy God, all of our silly attempts at earning salvation. Now, salvation must come to us, if at all, only through the sovereign action of the living God. And so every year, tens of millions wade into the Ganges River, Millions more go on Hajj to Mecca on a quest for forgiveness to be cleansed of their sins, made as innocent as the day they were born. Friends, our condition is far too dire, far too desperate for a Hajj or a Kumela. You see, you and I have offended the highest ranking dignitary in the universe. And we've covered things up, fearing that one day we would be outed. One day we might be exposed We've tried to rewrite our history and suppress painful memories, but we can't. We're helpless at the bar of God's perfect justice. The only way out is this. That baby in the manger became the man on the cross. It's not that Jesus came primarily as an example for us to emulate. And as God watched from far away, he lobbed down some help which we might call grace to get us over the finish line. It's not like we're buying God off with good behavior or, as Michael Reeves put it, getting topped up 
on the cross of Christ by sweeping our guilt under new and improved behavior. No, Christ actually came to save us. He accomplished all of the work from beginning to end. So there's no need to walk an aisle. If you're not a Christian here this morning, there's no need to raise a hand or sign a card. Even now, you can believe in Him. If only you will. Turn from your sin and trust in this mighty Savior, the one who is fully God such that He can save us and fully man so that He can really represent us. But if you do, let me assure you, it will be costly. Just ask Joseph. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As implausible as it was, as impossible as it was, Joseph was now convinced by divine revelation from the angel. And not only that, he was now willing to bear reproach for it. I mean, what would people think of Joseph and Mary? Of course, they knew she had gotten pregnant prematurely. You know, 30 years later, there were still rumors circulating that Jesus was somehow Ill illegitimate. And Joseph would have had to deal with that. Either the suspicion that he had been immoral, or that Mary had somehow been unfaithful, and nevertheless, he went forward with the marriage. Verse 25, but he knew her not, that is, he had no sexual union with her, until she had given birth to a son. Now, this means contrary to the Roman Catholic teaching on the perpetual virginity of Mary, that husband and wife thereafter had a normal married life together. And of course, the brothers and sisters of Jesus give good evidence of that. But of course, they were only Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, only his adoptive father. Now, liberal Bible teachers on the radio or internet might deride the virgin birth as a crude fact, but the believing church has always been clear on this. Jesus was not merely a local guru. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In fact, do you know the whole Gospel of Matthew is built in order to substantiate that point? We've seen how Matthew's Gospel begins. Now turn to the very last paragraph of Matthew. Notice how it all ends. Matthew 28. The final paragraph. So this is after the resurrection of Christ. And he gathers his disciples and he is giving them final instructions. And we see in Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then notice this, the last sentence. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel to the very end. And friends, this means that your life, if you know Christ, is never out of control. I mean, no matter how frantic it is, no matter how crazy it is, no matter how discouraging your life may seem, your little life is part of something much bigger if you know Jesus. And when you pass through the waters, he goes with you. So, are you weak? He says, I will strengthen you. Are you lonely? He says, I will be with you. Are you sinking in life? He says, I will hold you up. Just imagine the power. Just imagine the ocean of omnipotence standing behind the words Emmanuel, God with us. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that we would live in light of what this says because fear rises and sin strikes when you and I look away from God and toward ourselves. Maybe you know this from what's happened in your life even recently. Paul Tripp says, fear happens when I look at myself, assess my resources, and conclude that I do not have what it takes. But fear leaves God out of the equation. Because God says, I'm with you. I'm there for you. I will help you. And this is the meaning of Christmas. He came as a hero to rescue us. But not only that, he'll never leave us. Which is why it matters who Jesus is. Only someone who is infinite, only someone who is eternal God could pay that price for us. Which is why, way back in the fourth century, even jolly old Saint Nick got exercised about such things as false teaching spreading abroad about the person of Christ. You know, it's hard to know whether the, many of these traditions related to Saint Nicholas are re reliable or not, but we do know he was a real person, and we know he was revered by those around him. Now, one tradition has it that as a young boy, Nicholas used to go early to church to pray. And as Kevin DeYoung recounts it, one morning the aging priest had a vision that the first one to enter the church the next day should be the new bishop of Myra. When Nicholas was first to enter, the old priest, obeying the vision, made the boy bishop right there on the spot. But before he consecrated Nicholas, he asked him a question. Who are you, my son? And according to tradition, he simply responded, Nicholas the sinner. Of course, that's the only qualification we need. That's all that we contribute to our salvation, is our sin. Because the mighty God has come to save His people from their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the indescribable demonstration of love and compassion given us in the person of your Son. We praise you for this one who was infinitely rich and yet became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. 
Lord, we pray that we might esteem him all the more in view of what you have set down in Scripture here. We pray, Lord, that our hearts might well up with thanks and praise, that we might offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices, and that you would be glorified in our worship. For Jesus' sake, amen.